starting a new sermon series today called The Pursuit. And one, uh, one thing in all action and suspense movies, they all have at least one thing in common. They all have a chase scene. We have one character, they're in pursuit of the other, and, and it adds excitement and anticipation to the film. Well, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15. And in that chapter, we see an example of God's chase scene. And it answers the question of why Jesus came to this earth over 2,000 years ago. Obviously, the reason is Jesus came to redeem mankind. He came to save the lost. In other words, Jesus Christ came in pursuit of you and me. Now, Luke chapter 15, it tells three parables that I think most of us are familiar with. And as we delve into this, have you ever wondered, you know, we, we focus on the parables and, and what they mean, but have you ever thought about the people who are around Jesus at the time when he told the stories? You see, because when you understand who is around and who the story was directed to, well, then you have a greater understanding and revelation of what he meant when he told these particular stories. So it's already on the screen. If you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, we're going to begin reading at verse number 1. And all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. I mean, can you imagine church people complaining? I mean, that's just, I mean, that's, that's bizarre. They were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the one lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders. And coming home, he calls all of his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Well, then we have verse 8. And that begins the story of the lost coin where a woman loses a silver coin, turns her house upside down, and then rejoices when she finds it. And Jesus says in verse 10, I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. That brings us to verse 11, which is probably the most famous of the parables, and it's the story of the lost son which we'll talk about in a little bit. But you see, Luke chapter 15 begins with the religious leaders noticing something about Jesus. He always seems to attract and become friends with tax collectors and sinners, the moral outcast of respectable Jewish society. And in verse 2, these religious leaders were complaining, and I can imagine them saying something like, can you believe a man like Jesus would associate with people like that. They're surmising, you know, this guy who's supposed to be a rabbi, 
he hangs with these kinds of people, well, it means he's either lowering his standards or he's not preaching the truth to them. And so along with with their expert analysis and with the gathering of the tax collectors and sinners, Jesus tells these three stories. You have to understand, not in just random, isolated fashion. These stories are not told in a vacuum. These stories are told as a fact check, not fat check, fact check, to the accusations of the Pharisees and, and as a pursuit of those Jesus came for. Now, there are three components in each of these stories in Luke chapter 15. You have the listeners. You have the lost things, the sheep, the coin, and the son. And then you have the joyful seekers, those who rejoice in finding what was lost. Now, the listeners are important because you can't really understand why Jesus tells the story if you don't know who's around him. The lost things, well, they're important because they tell us something about sin. And then the joyful seekers tell us something about the heart of God. So first, the listeners. There are two groups of people around Jesus. And in this corner, you have the tax collectors and sinners, weighing in as the outcast of respectable society. In the other corner, you have the Pharisees, weighing in as the keepers of the law, the moral code of that day. And so we have these two exclusive groups who never did anything together, ever. You can be sure they were not friends on Facebook. You can take that to the bank. And the religious group is offended that Jesus would come and sit at the same table with sinners because in Jewish culture, table fellowship is a sign of of acceptance and and friendship. There's a well-known Middle Eastern proverb that says, I saw them eating and I know who they were. And it means that because I know who you share a meal with, it tells me a lot about who you are. The religious people thought, how can Jesus share a table with him? I mean, I mean, these are bad people. Doesn't he realize that they're the problem in our world today? And whether you've ever said it with your mouth, I mean, you don't have to say it with your mouth, but when you categorize others, when you say they're the bad guys without knowing them, your self-righteous arrogance by default all of a sudden makes you the good guy. So when these condescending religious leaders are wondering why Jesus would hang out with the bad people, well, it's because they're presuming that they are the good people. And so one, of the, so one point of Jesus telling these stories is to shatter their misconception about what it really means to be good in the first place. So through these parables, Jesus challenges the attitudes and the thoughts of the religious listeners. Well, next, let's look at the lost things. They're also interesting. In the first parable, you have the lost sheep. Now, sheep are by culture, I mean, are by nature, to be politically correct, well, they're intellectually challenged. To not be politically correct, you would say they're stupid. It's an animal that's completely incompetent once it's lost to be able to find its way back home. 
In the second parable, we have the coin, and it's even more incapable of making its way back home than than the dumb sheep. And then, of course, you have the son, the lost son. So there are three lost objects, the sheep, the coin, and the son. And all of them represent people who find themselves away from God for different reasons. And so Jesus was characterizing the people, the Pharisees viewed as sinners, as the lost things in these stories. Now they're lost in different ways. The sheep was lost through its ignorance, its inability to find its way back. The coin was lost through thoughtlessness. The son was lost by his own choice, by his willfulness. One lost through foolishness, another lost through thoughtlessness, a third lost through willfulness. And so what we have is Jesus defining a deeper, multidimensional view of sin. You see, because in that culture, there was only one view of sin, and the Pharisees sure didn't think that there could be any sin in their life because they were doing everything just right. Well, let's bring that up to today. Suppose Bubba has trouble with his anger. I'm sure every one of you thought of someone when I said Bubba has trouble with his anger. Fill in any name you want. He flies off the handle, he's verbally abusive, and on occasion he's even become physically abusive. Now there are some who would say that Bubba is the way he is because of his genetic makeup. Christians, on the other hand, would say he's the way he is because of the sin nature in his life. And like the sheep, he can't help but be this way. Then others would say, well, no, no, Bubba's more like the coin. See, the coin was lost not by anything of its own merit, but by the mishandling of those who cared for the coin. So maybe this man is the way he is because of his environment. I mean, after all, perhaps he grew up in a dysfunctional home and had abusive parents or a really mean sister. And that's what made Bubba. That's what made Bubba Bubba. Or others would say, no, Bubba's more like the lost son. He's that way because he chose to be. He's selfish, he's arrogant, he's wayward, he's bitter, and he's a result of his own choices. But here's the thing. The reality is that sin is much more complex than we think. It's inborn in us like the sheep. It's magnified in us through the sinful treatment by our environment, and it's deepened and shaped in our life through our own poor choices. And so Jesus' view of sin was much more comprehensive than what psychologists, sociologists, Dr. Phil, Oprah, and even religious leaders will acknowledge. And it is certainly much broader than what the Pharisees thought because to them, well, to them, sin was only categorized in four ways. That was it, four ways. You were a sinner if you did dirty things for a living, such as a pig farmer or a tax collector. Two, if you did immoral things like a liar or you were an adulterer. Three, if you didn't keep up the standards of the law, very important. If you didn't keep up the standards of the law like the good guys, that was sin. And number four, you were a, if you were a Samaritan or a Gentile, you were a sinner just because you were born into the wrong family. See, that's the way sin was characterized to them, and that's why the Pharisees could not believe that Jesus would hang around with these sinners. So Jesus begins to talk to them about the lostness of humanity, trying to make them understand that sin is much broader than what they think. And now he's saying, of course, you're lost if you're living in outright sin. 
But he's also saying that it's possible to be a keeper of the law and do everything morally right, but yet still be living in sin. See, it's possible to check off all the religious boxes but still be in sin because the very fact that they prided themselves on the ability to keep the law, that's sin itself. So Jesus was shattering their misconceptions. And because of who was listening and who was lost, Jesus shifted from just having a meal with tax collectors and sinners to preaching a sermon through three simple stories to the religious people. And today, I don't want us to so focus on the lostness of the obvious the sheep, the coin, and the sun, that we overlook the message to believers and we become blinded by our own self-righteousness. Let's not forget the dimension of sin that he was trying to expose. We're either in sin because of our nature, we're in sin because of our environment, or we're in sin because of our choices. But the truth is, probably for most of us, it's a combination of all three. But then before we, before we go further, let's not, let's not miss the heart of God, represented by the joyful seekers. See, in the story of the sheep, the seeker is the shepherd, and Jesus is comparing himself to the shepherd. He leaves the 99 in the pasture, and he goes into the thickets. He goes into the mess. He goes into the brokenness, the pain. He goes into the darkness to find this one sheep doing what is ever necessary to bring Fluffy back home. And then when Fluffy is found, notice the joy in the heart of the shepherd. Then Jesus is represented by the lady turning her house upside down and rejoicing when the silver dollar is found. And of course, when the sun is found, great joy. See, this is a demonstration of the heart of God. The great, that, that great joy occurs when the lost is found. Okay, well, so why is that so important? Well, the reason, the reason that that is so important is that, that so many people see religion simply as humanity searching for God. We're spiritual seekers, we're honest inquirers. After all, inquiring minds want to know. And so we're looking for things. And many people believe that if you just obey Jehovah God's laws, you can find him. But wait a minute. The problem is that anyone who feels like that they have searched for God and they have found him will naturally disdain those who are making no effort at all to find God. Now stay with me. If you're a Christian here today and someone asks you why you're saved, and if you feel you're saved because of your own searching, your own seeking, and your own efforts, well, it's easy from that self-righteous position to look down your nose in disdain on others who aren't quite as interested in their religious journey as you are. Because after all, how'd you get there? You did it. So the natural thing is, if this is a self-made Christianity and you made it, then bless God, they ought to be able to do it too. You see, that's the attitude of people who think they found God through religious works. 
I did it, so you should also. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 blows that out of the water. Because it says, for by God's grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You didn't find God, quit bragging, quit patting yourself on the back. God found you. And before you had any spiritual sense, God was arranging circumstances and people and places so that you could become aware of his grace. He had been pursuing you all of the time. You're not saved by your own doing. You are found by the depth and the love and the grace of God. Amen. But see, here's the danger, though. Because of the process of individualism that is so rampant in our society of everything being about be myself and I, we have filtered the gospel of Jesus Christ into thinking that we're going to heaven just because we think we're doing all the right things. If you're here today, check that box off. You put a nickel in the plate, check that box off. You talked about your neighbor, but that's not one of the boxes, so you don't have to worry about that one. I don't know what Bible you read, but... Listen, our relationship with God is, is not in doing all the right things. Now, that should be a natural byproduct of our relationship with God, but we don't do all the right things just to obtain God's love and favor. We do all the right things because we have God's love and favor. So one group of listeners is trying to earn God. The other group realize that they don't deserve God. One is lost because he has created a savior of himself and his own achievements. The other is lost because of his ignorance or his environment or his poor choices. You see, Christianity is the only religion in the world that tells people you don't have to seek God. God seeks you. The Tower of Babel demonstrates that in Genesis chapter 11. Man, man can't go up to God because God has already come down to man. That's the reason God became a man. That's why there was a baby in the manger because Emmanuel came to be God with us to rescue us because we don't have the power or the ability to rescue ourselves. Every other major religion in the world is conditioned upon the individual's ability to do all the right things. But Christianity is the only religion that says you can do it all, you can do all those things, you can check all the boxes, but yet still fail because it's not about those things. It's not in trying, it's in trusting. It's not in running, it's in resting. It's not in religious service, it's in righteousness. And Jesus Christ alone makes you righteous through his blood. Not you. So each of these parables was a challenge to the Pharisees' hardened attitude about those bad guys. But you see, God doesn't look at the spiritually lost the same way the Pharisees do because, you see, the Pharisees don't see themselves as sinners saved by grace. They see themselves saved by being able to check off the right box. Came to church, put my nickel on the plate. But one of the questions for you and me today is, can we remember the place that God brought us from? I'm afraid that there are a lot of people who have been saved so long that we've forgotten how far God had to reach down in the muck and the mire and the dirt 
and the pain and the hurt to pull us out. But listen, if we can recapture how far God had to reach down to get us, we won't be so quick to look down our noses at the sinners and the tax collectors sitting on the other side of the table. Some might say, well, you know, you're kind of going deep there, preacher. I've never been that bad. Well, be careful. You're on thin ice. That's a great testimony that God saved you when you were five and you've been an angel all your life. That's wonderful. Keep up the good work. But you still better guard your heart against a self-righteous attitude that says, hey, my sin doesn't stink as bad as yours stinks. Every one of us today need to remember that Jesus Christ died for us. And even the most moral of us still need a Savior because our righteous acts presented to God are like filthy rags. I don't care how many old people you help across the street. I don't care how many animals you save from being gassed at the shelter. We are only righteous when we put on his robe of righteousness. That is the only way. Now, I don't think there'd be any debate on this. Um, I think pretty much if you've been here any time at all, you know that I'm crazy. I probably need to be on medicine. But, you know, you know it. And I admit it. Crazy. See, I thought, I thought that my mom loved me the most when I was a kid because I was her best kid. Which really was true. I really was. I really was her best kid. But, but I thought that's why she loved me the best. But you see, so many Christians feel that same way about God. Our idea of grace is that if we work hard, if we sacrifice, if we force ourselves to read the Bible, maybe God will like us the best and bless us more than he does our sister. But you see, this mindset creates a works-based religion, and then it's easy for us to wind up like the Pharisees. Listen, God's grace or his adoption is not earned. It is given, no assembly required, by putting on his robe of righteousness. Think about this with me for a minute. If Jesus... <clears throat> Excuse me. If Jesus, Jesus was going to come to your house, who would you invite? Would you invite me? Maybe. Perhaps some of the elders. You'd certainly invite your spirit-filled grandma. But you can bet there would sure be some people that you would not invite. Crazy Uncle Ernie? No way. Your best friend who you just found out was sleeping around? And there is certainly no way you'd invite your brother-in-law who's an, who's an atheist. 
I mean, that'd be too embarrassing. After all, you wouldn't want the Lord to feel uncomfortable, and so you would invite the good guys, right? But do you see how obtuse that thinking is based on who Jesus ate with? Jesus, the sinless sinless son of God, was always hanging out with the bad guys. Those were the people he was pursuing. And amazingly, when he got close to them, it was the sinners or the bad guys whose lives were changed. And let me say right now, thank God Jesus isn't a religious snob because the truth is, I used to be a bad guy. Jesus spent much of his three-year ministry hanging out with the disenfranchised, and it ticked off the religious crowd. Made them mad. Okay, let's let's take another step. So Jesus comes to your house, has a great time with your grandma. And uh, so the next day, Jesus hosts a luncheon. And if you follow the Gospels, he... He would invite an abortion doctor, a rapist, a drug dealer, a couple from the LGBTQ community, a foreign chicken plucker, an addict, a felon. He would invite an unmarried woman on welfare with five kids by three different fathers. And Jesus would be there with a big old smile on his face sitting at the head of the table. But amazingly enough, I mean, you can't write stuff better than this. Amazingly enough, a group of preachers happen to be sitting at the next table. Now, these good guys, man, they're sharp looking. They're sharp. And when the food comes, they even hold hands together and pray. But they can't enjoy their meal because they can't get past the crowd with Jesus. The chicken plucker is wearing their hairnet. The addict addict can't seem to find his mouth with his spoon. But those are not the things that broke the good guy's heart. What broke the heart of the religious crowd was Jesus himself. There he is sitting at that table laughing, having a good time, as if everything is just fine. And they're whispering, who's going to believe he speaks for God if he can't keep any better company than that? Remember the proverb, I saw them eating and I knew who they were. So the third story Jesus tells is about the lost son, or some call it the prodigal son. I'm sure you've all heard it many times, but let me just briefly summarize in case you haven't. A man has two sons. The younger son asks for his inheritance. The father agrees, and so the son leaves. But then he squanders his inheritance with riotous, excess living. Becoming destitute, the son realizes that the servants at his father's house have it better off than he does. So he comes back home intending to beg for his father to allow him to just be a servant. But the father sees him coming down the road and from afar, and the father runs and welcomes the son back with great celebration. 
But then the older brother comes into the picture. And being very jealous. After all, his little brother is certainly one of the bad guys. The big brother refuses to participate in the party. Now remember, Luke chapter 15 began with a complaint from the, from the self-righteous good guys about Jesus hanging out and breaking bread with the bad guys. And so in return, that was the purpose of Jesus telling these stories. He gave the religious authorities a subtle rebuke for their self-righteousness. You see, because Jesus understands the man with two sons, the, the man with, yes, Jesus, sorry, Jesus understands the man with two sons who can't get his family to sit down at the same table. He understands that. The younger son is so warped by his sense of unworthiness that he doesn't even want to come into the table. And he says, Father, just let me eat and sleep with your servants. While the older son is so inflated by his sense of entitlement, he won't eat with anyone who hasn't earned the right to sit at the father's table. And both sons suffer from an illusion. An illusion that they can be in a relationship with their father without being in a relationship with each other. They think that they can love God without loving people. Now, I'm really cool with you guys. Now, you guys? Not so sure about. How can I expect God to give his love to me when I refuse to give it to you? No problem giving it to you, but you, I choke on. But yet I expect God to give unto me freely. See, the father prepares a meal for both of them so they can celebrate together. And it's easy for the younger son because he's just excited that they're not having pork chops. But not for the older brother. There were three chairs at the table. One for the father and one for each son. But in spite of the father's assurance that everything that he owned, everything that he had left, belonged to the elder son. The story ends with the older son standing in the yard, refusing to go in. So the father goes in to celebrate with the sinner who accepted grace. Why is this such a haunting story? Well, because it strips bare the idea that we can love God but yet despise each other. Whether each other is across the ocean or across town or across the aisle. You see, one of the main ways we work out our relationship with God is to work out our relationship with our fellow man. I mean, after all, after all, wasn't it Jesus who said that the two greatest commandments were to love God and to love people? So let me close by getting back to the luncheon that Jesus had. So Jesus saw the preachers, they were looking, and they, you know, he saw them whispering, and, and he knew they were complaining. 
not going to pull anything over on God. Come on. But Jesus says, hey, guys, how's it going? Pull up a chair. Come on over and join us. We're having a great time. I'll even buy some pie. Come on. See, Jesus also ended the parable of the lost son by waiting on the answer from the elder brother. And our story of Jesus hosting a lunch ends the same way. Will the good guys, the religious, the moral, the chosen, associate with the bad guys? Whoever the good guys perceive they are. Bow your heads if you would. Church, if we are truly interested in the heart of God, then like Jesus, we will pursue the lost. Because Jesus said, the well don't need a doctor. I came in pursuit of the sick. But see, in our complacency, in our going through the motions, in our checking off the boxes, we forget what the Savior is all about. And then in our sinful nature, we've actually turned our religion into sin by trying to earn our way to God and by demanding things from God just because we've done everything just right in our own mind. But the message from the Lord today to us is that our rightness is not righteousness. Because real righteousness can only be given by God when we accept His Son. And so whether preacher, prostitute, or plumber, we all have to find grace in Jesus at the cross. Now in a moment, I'm going to invite two different kinds of people to the table. One is the prodigal, the one who's away from God, the person who doesn't know Jesus, the person who, who knows they have sin in their life, the one who knows they really don't deserve a place at the table. But if I'm speaking to you, I want you to know, though, that Jesus is inviting you this morning. Because it's not in your goodness or your badness. It's about God pursuing you to have a relationship with you. That's why he came to, to this earth in the first place. To have a relationship with you. There's a heavenly father that's inviting tax collectors and sinners to his table. Then there's another group. We come to church. We try to live right. But you see, when we're not careful, we slip into comparisonitis. And what I mean by that is that we make ourselves feel better by looking at the sins of other people. Because we don't sleep around. We're not addicts. We pay our tithe. We come to church once in a while. And we feel like we're the ones who, who do it right. 
But you see, the problem is that self-righteousness doesn't have a seat at the table either. Of course, we know the sinners and the tax collectors don't have a seat at the table, but neither does a self-righteous older brother. Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 21, tax collectors and prostitutes will enter heaven before you. And some of us here today need to realize that. And we need to say, dear God, I'm as lost as they are. I'm blinded by my own rightness that is not your righteousness. And in trying to earn your grace, I've missed your grace. And we need to also say, Father, forgive me. See, grace in the parable is that Jesus invites all of us to his table. Sinners, tax collectors, older brothers, the self-righteous, the hurting, the broken, the questioning. Jesus is pursuing us all. 